This is Words Matter with Elise Jordan and Steve Schmidt. Welcome to Words Matter. I'm Elise Jordan along with Steve Schmidt. Our goal is to promote objective reality. As a wise man once said, everyone is entitled to their own opinion, not their own facts. Words have power and words have consequences. I'm so excited today to have with us Adam Davidson, who is a staff writer at The New Yorker and one of the world's experts on the Trump finances. And you really have done such a deep dive, and I find you to be an essential read constantly because you're able to get into the weeds of what's going on with the Russian investigation and with Trump's businesses, but make it actually accessible to someone like yours truly who might not be such a business expert. So thanks so much for being with us today. Oh, thanks. That was very nice. And I'm a fan of the podcast, so thrilled to be here. Great to see you. Thanks for doing this. I first became obsessed with your writing with the story you did that was an incredible long-form investigation of Donald Trump's business dealings in Baku, Azerbaijan. Can you talk a little bit about that story just to kind of set the scene for what you saw in that particular country and what it means to the big picture of Trump's business dealings? Sure. I had been covering kind of the Trump organization overall, and I had this desire to really see how, how how are decisions made? How does this work? So I wanted to pick a single deal. And of course, being, you know, I wanted something that would be interesting, but I had no idea just how interesting it was going to become. I, I chose this Baku-Azerbaijan deal because it was a deal no serious business person in the United States would even consider. His his partners in Azerbaijan, this the Mamada family, were famously corrupt for Azerbaijan. In fact, in the WikiLeaks cable dump of uh, the, there's you see these U.S. embassy people years before Trump got involved saying, wow, these people are so corrupt, even in Azerbaijan, one of the most corrupt places in the world. They're really, really corrupt. And, and it's weird that he would do business with them. As I learned more, it became even more troubling because it was a deal that did not seem to make any sense as a real estate opportunity. They were building a luxury hotel and residence. The Whether it was a hotel or a residence seemed to change every few minutes. It was on the wrong side of town. It was in completely the wrong side of town. It's like, um, you know, some random area in Queens or something saying, this is going to be the most luxurious place in New York City. No offense to Queens. I like Queens. But there seemed to be no economic logic. Um, they built the building. Then they didn't like the architecture. So they unbuilt it, then built it again, then unbuilt it, then built it again. Why would anyone want to do that? Yeah. And and so it happens to be, I'm not saying, it happens to be that internationally major real estate projects are a great way to launder money because you're, um, you know, if, if you have a ton of money in, say, Baku, Azerbaijan, and you want to get that money out, say, to London or New York, where we know the Mamadov family had a lot of business ties, a big international real estate deal, you're just sending so much money around. You're paying architects and engineers millions of dollars. You're buying you know, everything from door handles to marble walls and wood paneling. There's hundreds of millions of dollars. And there's no entity out there adding it all up. So you can, you know, you could 
end up spending $5 billion and say you spent $200 million. There's no – nobody's going to look at that. And the problem is if you're the most corrupt family in Azerbaijan, it people might look. You know, the U.S. authorities, the British authorities might say, huh, why are those people spending all that money? But it seemed to me the only logical reason they would have wanted to be in business with Trump was to be able to just – on all the shipping uh, receipts and and duty you know customs duties form it would say Trump organization but then it got even worse or, as a reporter frankly even more fascinating that at the same time that they were doing business with Trump I also had firsthand accounts that and then the company admitted that they were paying in duffel bags filled with cash even though the Mamato family owned a bank so people were and in their office building, they own a big office building, you walk through their bank and go upstairs and get a duffel bag of cash. This is, these are international contractors. There's no logical reason why you would do that, even in Azerbaijan. Obviously, bags of cash are a big alarm signal for money laundering. But at the same time, almost certainly, I would say we make an unbelievably powerful circumstantial case, they were in business with a front for Iran's Revolutionary Guard. Um, and I could go into endless detail. And to me, I will say, I mean, this is my own reporting. I feel I don't want to say this too loud, but why isn't this a bigger deal? I mean, I think with and by the way, the Trump organization, their lawyer, their top lawyer, Alan Garten, said there is not a factual error in the article. There, there is nothing wrong in the article. He wished I hadn't written it, but there's nothing wrong in it. So the Trump organization has admitted that they did business with someone who at the same time was laundering likely billions of dollars from the Iran's Revolutionary Guard. The Trump Tower project was their biggest project. I was not able to show for sure that Trump's money came from Iran's Revolutionary Guard, but the Trump organization did no effort to show that it didn't. It seems like that should be a big story. So that's how I started this whole adventure. And what date did you publish the story? February 2017. 2017. But still, it's, it's amazing to me that the story actually didn't take huge legs and everyone would be all over it, given the fervor surrounding Iran among some of Donald Trump's strongest supporters. But it wasn't just Azerbaijan. It was Georgia. It was looking at deals in Uruguay, India, the Philippines, and Panama. He, and he's always to, involved with local corrupt officials. Yeah. I mean, there there is an amazing, you know, he talks obviously about the Trump brand being this major brand, but you never hear about the Trump Tower Paris, the Trump Tower London. And even in India, it's not Delhi. It's, you know, a suburb of Mumbai. Um, it's uh, in, in the in Indonesia, it's not Jakarta. It's, it's far outside of Jakarta. You you see this pattern where he's doing projects that don't make a lot of obvious sense from an economic standpoint. Like I did a lot on the Republic of Georgia. Again, massive, high, un, hundreds of millions of dollar project that was based on the idea, I, I think I have the numbers roughly right, that it would be $200 per square meter to buy one of these luxury residences. And one of these lucky breaks, there happened to be an authoritative real estate report done on this town, Batumi, Georgia, that said the most expensive property there was $20 per square foot, that there that this was a town, a kind of sleepy town for, you know, sort of middle class Georgians, which by American standards would mean poor people, you know, people make five grand a year or something like that to buy little, small 50 square meter dachas. And so the idea that they're going to sell this 
hyper luxury, like Monaco priced luxury real estate in this town made zero sense. They said, oh, no, we had a Turkish firm who did the business analysis and it, it all worked out. And I said, can I see it, please? And they, they wouldn't give it to me. So you see this again and again. And very frequently, the partners either have been convicted of financial fraud or because he does business in a lot of countries that are deeply endemically corrupt, uh, where corruption prosecution isn't it really just means you're against the government because everybody's corrupt. So, or everyone at that level is corrupt. So you, but you see him working with partners that I don't think you know the Ritz Carlton, the Four Seasons, other global real estate licensing brands would even consider. Not because they're more moral, but because it's just risky. If you get in bed, if you do a business deal with someone who's highly corrupt, you have to be very careful that that. Uh, liability, that legal liability doesn't transfer to you. It's also they're very more likely to steal from you, to do bad deals. So part of what struck me was the total lack of due diligence, but part of what struck me was just just such bad business. Like, why would you take on these risks when he's making typically a $2 million, a million, $4 million. I'd love to make a million or $4 million, but for him, at least the way he presents himself. These should not be numbers that where you would take on potentially hundreds of millions of dollars in liability for just a million here, two million there. So what was the reaction to your story when this when this came out? You know, I had this talk right before the story came out with someone at the Trump organization who, you know, it's the New Yorker. So we fact check every every word. And so they knew what was in the story. And I said, you know, you do not seem nervous. Like, I feel like this is going to be a bad story for you. And this person said, you know, I know exactly what's going to happen. Rachel Maddow is going to freak out. MSNBC is going to go nuts. Uh, maybe some Democrats in Congress will get mad and nobody will care and it won't break through. And I remember telling David Remnick that and his head just <laughs> fell. You know, my boss, the editor of The New Yorker, and he's like, do you think he's right? I was like, yeah, he's probably right. And that was exactly what happened. We did get some senators who wrote a letter to the White House saying, you know, we want more information, and, and then nothing came of it. I want to make sure I have the pronunciation right. It's the Memento family? Mamadoff. The Mamadoff family. Which, by the way, like every third family in, in uh, Azerbaijan is the Mamadoff family. So it's the, well, the son is Anar, the dad is Zia, who was the transportation minister at the time. The land was built on land seized from the transportation ministry. In a way, the most upsetting fact I learned, which really even the people who picked up on it didn't pick up on this, is there's this crucial meeting with Ivanka Trump. This was Ivanka's project. She, you know, most projects at the Trump Organization, either Ivanka or Don Jr. kind of oversee. But Ivanka more than oversaw. She went to Baku. She actively was involved in all the meetings. She had her spa ready. She had her spa ready. She... So the original plan, there was these old train yards that the transportation ministry owned in the middle of a place where you would never build a luxury building, but that's the property the transportation minister controlled. And so that's where this luxury tower was going to be. And I heard from two different sources that Ivanka said, we don't just want the tower, we want it to be in a kind of garden-like setting. We want there to be a lot more greenery around, like a park next to it. But there's a lot of people who lived in that area, poor people, you know, working people who had these kind of humble homes. 
And I got uh, multiple sources, and there's a YouTube video of it. The you know Azerbaijan is an autocratic state with a powerful secret police. Just knock up, say the transportation ministry has declared this land vital for national interests. Just kicked everyone out, destroyed all the homes, and built the garden that Ivanka wanted. Now. You could say, did she know that? Did she direct them to do that? Maybe not. But I will tell you now that anyone who has ever spent any time talking about Azerbaijan, dealing with Azerbaijan, knows that's how Azerbaijan works. And so you do not casually mention to powerful oligarchs in Azerbaijan, boy, that area where there are all those houses, I'd sure love a park there without knowing what, how they're going to get a park there. You think any chance when Zia Mamadov went to the old man and said, I can't believe how corrupt these Trumps are? <laughs> I think there's a very good chance they said, I can't believe how gullible they are. I mean, this was a family that was on the make and not doing a good job at it. Um, Azerbaijan is a family country. It's owned by the Aliyev family and, and the president, president's wife is part of the other big family, the Pashayevs. And... The Mamadovs are these like kind of desperate scroungers. They're kind of a, a joke in, in, in Azerbaijan. And they had been trying forever to get some international something. They wanted some flair. And I bet they were like, whoa, that guy agreed to everything and didn't ask a question. What would the motive be, though? Does this appear to be, when you just look at it flat out, a case of money laundering? Is there just no discernible rationale whatsoever for there to be a real estate enterprise by an American developer in Baku, in Azerbaijan, of this nature. So I would say that without question, there was no possible way this was going to be an economical problem, you know, that there was a solid business reason for this. Because they were not convicted in a court of law, although soon after my article came, Zia Mamadov was kicked out. He was no longer transportation minister. Um, and the family has been very quiet since then. I would say that Every expert I showed this to said it, every red flag, a non-economical project, a real estate project, um, a project with, with no discernible reason, with a family famous. So as far as we can tell, what they were doing, what a lot of oligarchic families do in, in the, throughout the former Soviet Union, they were trying to get their money safe. Because the one thing you know for sure, if you're not Putin or Aliyev, is that Someone closer to Putin or Aliyev is going to take your money someday. Or how, how has this escaped scrutiny from American authorities over all these many years? So one conclusion is there's a lot of white-collar crime in America that is un, just isn't looked at. Money laundering is unbelievably hard. I talked to a lot of DOJ people, FBI people about this. Um, you have to – and Foreign Corrupt Practices Acts are hard. Sanctions violations are hard. I would say if you want to commit massive financial fraud, involve a former Soviet Union country because it's very expensive to send FBI agents. They do it sometimes to investigate one of these crimes, but then they have no subpoena power. They have to work with the local authorities. The local authorities obviously are part of the local political structure. So – it, it's almost impossible unless you have um, – I mean people – at least one person did go to jail for – an American for bribing people in Azerbaijan. But it's a really hard case to prove. The other thing is if you look at who the Department of Justice goes after, they go after like huge companies. They go after you know huge mining concerns or you know Coca-Cola. They, they've been very um, 
huge fine focused, you know, trying to get $800 million fines for international crime. I, I don't know that the Trumps were attractive as a prosecutor. You know, if you're trying to build a case before he was thinking of running for president. I mean, this is like a joke of a real estate licensor in New York who'd be a big loudmouth. And what are you going to get out of it? You know, how much money does he have? But one of the main things I've learned, though, is I do think Trump has been at the far end of comfort with legally questionable practices. But there's a lot, a lot of white collar crime in America that is unprosecuted. Well, your column now is called Swamp Chronicles, which is sad considering that the entire 2016 campaign, it was all about draining the swamp, getting rid of the lobbyist. Does it feel like to you that Trump, his business practices abroad, where he would overlook pretty much anything? And one of the first items he mentioned to Rex Tillerson when Rex Tillerson became Secretary of State was, ah, the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act, we need to get rid of that. And Rex Tillerson explained that there was a good use and purpose behind it as a former CEO of a multinational corporation. Do you feel like those business practices are now in Washington, in Trump's Washington? Yeah, I mean, I think it's instinctive just in the way Trump behaves. I mean, you and I at least were in the Middle East around the same time. And, you know, in Arabic, there's WASTA, connections. And business is conducted through WASTA. You know, who do you know? And I remember... One of Iraq's most wealthiest business people, I was, I, who's a big, I would talk to him all the time about Iraqi business culture, and he said, "Have you watched Sopranos? It's exactly the same. We're, you know, we know each other, we do business with each other. Sometimes, only sometimes, we kill each other. And I'm not saying Trump's <laughs> ever killed anybody, but I think you see he lives the world in the world as someone who makes deals, who does, you know, who." A powerful person talks to another powerful person, and then they enrich each other, and they enrich a friend. So so to me, obviously, that's happening. There's no question. I mean, he's open about it. He's not, you know, he goes to meet Kim Jong-un and starts talking about how he wants to hook some of his friends up with some sweet hotel deals in Pyongyang or whatever. What is shocking to me is I, I would have thought we had more institutional, and this is something you guys talk about all the time, more institutional protection against that kind of WASTA system. Um, I remember an Iraqi telling my wife when we were in Iraq, we hoped the Americans would come and make us more American, but you came and we made you more Iraqi, and meaning highly corrupt, this kind of WASTA-based system. And I think, you know, obviously, we are seeing that in front of us, and we're seeing shockingly little resistance. We're seeing Rand Paul saying Manafort shouldn't, be guilty because he wouldn't have been convicted except that he ran the president's campaign. What are you talking about? Manafort committed outrageous frauds against the United States and admitted to it. Of course he should be convicted. And I can't defend that as a former staffer on Senator Paul's presidential campaign. I I would like to see less corruption everywhere, and I would like to see all corruption prosecuted. And I would like to see a legal system where we're more equipped to go after white-collar crime and not ignore it just because rich people are able to lawyer up and are able to fight it more effectively. Something that you— Oh, sorry. Can I just— Sure. Because uh, I've spent my career at NPR, New York Times, The New Yorker. I'm definitely on the left side. But I'm enough of a business reporter that I really believe in markets and am fairly well-read on libertarian ideas and sympathetic to many of them. And I fear that 
Rand Paul and others are are misusing concern about overregulation with misunderstanding that collusion, corruption are um, antithetical to functioning markets. And it's something Adam Smith was very clear about that um, that uh, one of the great risks to a functioning free market is business people having corrupt practices. And so I just felt like making that point that I, I think, I mean, n- not offending to your former boss, but um, that this is not a discussion about should America have more regulation, less regulation, easier regulation, not regulation. This is – It's a law fully, and order conversation. Yeah, yeah, and a markets, a functioning markets conversation. We've totally in this country lost sight of the distinction, at least, between oversight and regulation. Sometimes oversight could lead to regulation. Uh, sometimes oversight may expose an unnecessary regulation, but the idea that – the Congress shouldn't be oversighting the administration, that the executive agency shouldn't be oversighting American business, Wall Street, is the whole American system is designed through the prism of everybody's got an eye on someone else to keep everybody honest. And and I think that that collapse of this idea that, of course, we want a vigorous SEC oversighting what's going on on Wall Street. Of course, we want vigorous government oversight of, for example, the mortgage industry, which nearly collapsed the the global economy. It's a you know, it is an extraordinary moment because when you look at what's going on in Washington, all these rules that we thought were in place, all of these safeguards, when you look at the behavior, it turns out none of them were real and the degree to which people have done things in this administration and the absolute brazenness with which they've done them is just an extraordinary sight to behold. And let's address that a little bit, Adam, the brazenness. And one of your points is that everything Donald Trump has done that has been lawless and without respect to the rule of law is out there in the open. Yes. And so I wrote a piece this last week that I, I don't understand, and it's an argument I have with other reporters. There's this kind of thing that's out there that, oh, we must uh, see the Columbia Journalism Review just had an article about it. Hey, let's not get ahead of our skis. We don't know what Mueller has to say yet. It's We can't yet, you know, say Trump is guilty of anything. And my view is, you know, if you want to say he has to be convicted in a court of law to be guilty, okay, fine. But he is now, from multiple sources, <laughs> including his most trusted associates implicated in federal crimes. And we know enough now about the way he ran his campaign and its continuity, both in personnel and practice with the way he ran his business, that I feel it is responsible now to make the case that he was using his increasingly serious stature as a front runner in the Republican primary and then in the general to enrich himself by selling to at least one, if not more than one, hostile foreign power access to the future president. And and I think that case is made. Now, whether there's explicit collusion that, that we can now say, yes, on this date, they explicitly talked about X, Y, and Z, that is to come. But what we do know is that for months, he was 
instructing his team to reach out to Russia and say, we want Putin's favor so that we can make a lot of money. Putin was signaling to him and his team, we want to work with you to change the election. And this is now verified again and again in in, in Cohen's guilty plea, in Cohen's sentencing memo, um, in Manafort's sentencing memo, in Donald Trump's own words. I mean, his his quote unquote denial was, yeah, I was trying to do business in Russia. I'm a businessman and maybe I would have lost. And, um, you know, Felix Sater has spelled it out in explicit, exquisite detail with in BuzzFeed. So I think that I would like to see reporters and other commentators say, all right, Trump did try to eagerly <laughs> try to compromise his principles in order to get favor with Vladimir Putin. And we don't know how that worked out exactly. We know they talked a lot. We know there was a lot of encouragement back and forth. We are waiting to find out if that worked. Well, why do you think that is? I mean, it's an, an, an extraordinary cousin to that is the sense that when you're sitting on a cable news set and somebody will say, well, is today the day that we'll see a new Donald Trump? Right. <laughs> and I just find it an extraordinary conversation to have is that if there's one thing clear is the guy we got is the guy we have. And when you look at his behavior, there is no new Donald Trump no. never coming. But but why is it? Why the reluctance to call a lie a lie, to look at what we already know that is in the open and to just assert it as fact? Why? So I did have this conversation with a few journalists this week, and, and sometimes it got pretty heated. And what I learned just because I completely agree with you. I grew up in New York City. I was sort of – I was not fascinated with Trump, but I was like aware of him. I feel like I've not learned much new about Trump in the last 10 years. You how, know, how old are you? I'm 48. So I'm, I'm 48 as well, and I was just having this conversation with somebody, which is I feel like Donald Trump has existed on my frontal lobe <laughs> – of my consciousness <laughs> since I was 12 years yeah, old. exactly. He's just been omnipresent. And I think if you grew up in the tri-state area, I think that many of us are just amazed that Donald Trump is president of the United States. But but if you grew up in New Jersey, New York, and Connecticut, yeah, it's, it's just beyond, it's beyond, great. beyond. Yeah. Although what's even crazier is some of my cousins in New York support him, <laughs> which... I do think the press corps is somewhat divided, and I might overstate this. I, I did like a – I'm trying to be less aggressive on Twitter as, as we all are, but um, – or some of us are. Um, but I was saying there's kind of – in my mind, there's a bit of a New York, D.C. divide, that there are business reporters covering Trump as a businessman. I think of Tim O'Brien. I think of um, my friends at ProPublica, my uh, David Farenthold, uh um, WNYC's Trump Inc. And I don't want to speak for any of them, but I think those people think Trump is extremely vulnerable, that this is an extremely risky period, and that there's a huge hunting ground of illegal actions that, you know, whether it's Mueller or Democrats in the House or the New York AG or whoever, there's he's extremely vulnerable. Because, right, every one of these business reporters covers business and they look inside the business and they come away from it and they say, holy shit, never yeah. seen anything like this. Never and this guy's the, the president of the United States. And Trump wasn't able to employ the best and the brightest. No. He has Michael Cohen. He has Michael Cohen. He has Alan Weisselberg, who went to Pace. No, no problem with Pace, but 
his first job was with Fred Trump. His second job was with Donald Trump in 1973. And he's still there doing all the books, doing all the finances. So he's like the accountant from the Untouchables. Yeah. <laughs> right? yeah. So Kevin Costner on horseback. To yeah. Go get him. He'd yeah. Get the accountant out of Chicago. But the D.C. folks who are really Mueller focused and who often come from either they cover the White House or they cover intelligence and are really zeroed in on was there a secret meeting? I mean, this whole secret meeting coverage, you know, the seashells and did, was Michael Cohen in Prague and and this kind of spy novel view that either there was or there wasn't some hotel room somewhere where someone handed someone a briefcase and either it happened or it didn't. And if it didn't happen, then Trump's innocent. And if it did happen, he's guilty. I think that approach is wrong. I think that what the business folks know is there is no degree of unethical, illegal I that he wouldn't do, although I think he might not know that it's unethical or illegal. He might be indifferent to that in that it can't be a sophisticated plan. Obviously, he's not capable of that. So whatever we find out is going to be probably way more corrupt, but also way more pathetic and shabby and lame than than we realize. So I've just noted that depending on your perspective you and, and, and what you cover, you, you think about this very differently. Well, that's exactly right. I mean, when you talk to so many political reporters, it's this idea that the incompetence explicates the intent. Right. Right, exactly. And you can be incompetently, grossly corrupt. Well, which is the Trump campaign's excuse all along. Oh, we were way too incompetent and way too disorganized to have any form of collusion with Russia. Right. And so I would say collusion is not a precise word. But if we sat Mitch McConnell, Rand Paul, Lindsey Graham, Mike Pence down five years ago and said, I'm just going to paint a picture. A businessman is running for president has encouraged one of his main lawyers to reach out to the Kremlin and tell them we want Putin's favor as he's running for president, um, who has been informed multiple times that Russia is a, is trying to influence our legal system, who be- believes he's going to make hundreds of millions of dollars by courting um, Vladimir Putin. I, I don't see any scenario where those people would say, yeah, that that person cannot be president. That is beyond unacceptable. So that's what there's a different thing. Will they do it? Will they do it? Can you get 25 senators or whatever, Republican senators to to remove him from office? Probably not. I mean, I don't know what. No, cer- certainly not. And that's one of the extraordinary aspects of this is not just the debasement of the presidency, but the debasement of the U.S. Senate, where five years ago, if you had said, tell me the difference between a Russian senator and a United States senator, I could have gone on for many hours. Today, if you ask me the difference between a Russian senator of Putin's party, and they're all in Putin's party, and a United States senator in Trump's party, they're exactly the same, that they're not there as members of a co-equal branch of government. They're not there to provide checks and balances. They are servile. They are docile. They are obedient without exception to the leader. I've been amazed at how quickly the Helsinki moment you know, left our minds yeah. and we had to move on to the next crisis, the next disaster, the next outrage. But it was pretty huge. Donald Trump beside Vladimir Putin on foreign soil saying that he did not trust the analysis of U.S. intelligence agencies that Russia had interfered in our election. Let's talk about compromise. Yeah. Do the Russians have it on Donald Trump 
Is it financial in nature or is it personal in nature? So this is another thing that has been a kind of a wonderful side benefit of, of covering Trump is I just get to learn about the world in a very complicated way. And it's very interesting. So we talk about compromise as if it is like one person once really screwed up and there happened to be a Russian camera there with some prostitutes. And But um, compromise is a fundamental tool of power. It was in the Soviet Union. It is in Russia and throughout the former Soviet Union. It is a ubiquitous tool. And we, we know a lot about it because um, we know – and there, there's been a lot of scholarly work on it. It's a very openly used tool. So basically, to oversimplify a bit, but if you're a wealthy person in the former Soviet Union, you are corrupt. There is no – you know, there's no Google of, you know, Kazakhstan or, you know, nobody's making money by creating a more efficient product or service at a better price or whatever. And the intelligence services of each state is carefully studying everything about these financial deals and is most likely has, you know, they, they'll they have people in the banks, they'll have people in all of the companies in every transaction. And they are compiling massive dossiers. I mean, think of buildings filled with data on everybody who's above a certain level, um, you know, in the multi-millions and every significant foreign business person. And so when Trump is doing business with the Mamadovs, the FBI might find it almost impossible to prove that money from Iran went through the Mamadovs to Trump. But... Azerbaijan was, you know, the Aliyev family are, were a KGB family. Azerbaijan was famous for being deeply KGB connected. The Mamadovs are actually, uh, Azerbaijan business families are a little bit divided between are they more American oriented or Russia oriented. The Mamadovs are very Russia oriented. There's no possible way the Russians don't know everything about those financial transactions and, and the nature of that. Similarly, the deal in Georgia was, uh, it, it's a long story, but but was with, uh, it involved some Kazakh money under the control of Timur Kolobayev, who serves on the Gazprom board with Putin. I mean, Putin's like piggy bank, Putin's main company. The Agalarovs, who the Trumps have done a lot of, you know, they did the Miss Universe pageant. Those are the guys who proposed the Trump Tower meeting. Um, the Agalarovs are the biggest suck-ups to Putin in, in, on earth. And so even if Trump was – no one ever dreamed that he'd be president. No one ever thought about it. Just as a natural part of him being a famous American businessman, there would be agents following him, agents following every financial transaction and compiling it. They do this all the time. We see it with Khodorkovsky and Rubovlev and others that when these oligarchs turn on Putin or turn on the Kazakh president or turn on the Azerbaijani president, instantly they're arrested for a very detailed – financial crime. That's because everybody can be arrested. Everyone who's rich can be arrested on detailed financial crime. So it's known as, they call it sistema. I'm not good at the Russian, but sistema. Um, it's this practice of compromise. And it's not, some of the things I found interesting is it's not binary. The last thing you want to do is say, hey, Elise, if you don't give me your hotel, I'm going to reveal this fact about you. It's more like a constant tool, and it works in darkness. Like, you're more terrified that I might know the worst thing you ever did. If I actually tell you the details of what I know, you might go, oh, okay, yeah, but he doesn't know about that other thing, and I could probably get out of that. So it works in hints and suggestions, you know. 
hey, Elise, we sure had a pretty fun time in Baku that day. Do you remember? Um, or, boy, Elise, you've been investing a lot of money in, in the Black Sea. That's really interesting. You know, things that shift you this way and that, that it, it's, when you actually use it, you've lost it. It's bad. And so the idea that Putin, a master, you know, who definitely is, knows this well, it could be he sat Trump down and said, hey, you got to do this, this and that. It could just be, hey, Putin, your old friend Mom- Zia Mamadov said to say hello. By the way, we're really concerned that you guys are getting aggressive on these Georgian sailors. I'd like to talk to you about that. You know, that that might even be too blunt. And so is there compromise on Trump? I would be shocked if there's not. Frankly, if he's innocent of everything in the former Soviet Union, they should have released it to me and everyone else. They should tell us that because um, there's a lot. So, yes, there must be. It must be financial. It might also be sexual. And it's probably used constantly in uh, in communication. Well, and so we question if Donald Trump acts in the national interest and not his own personal financial interest. But we also have to ask the same question when it comes to Jared Kushner. Can you talk a little bit about your reporting on the Kushners and their real estate empire? So there's a similar thing between – I mean the Kushners and Trumps are, are very similar in, in many ways. You know, New York real estate is a rough and tumble kind of ugly place. And certainly in the 70s and 80s, there, there were a lot of behaviors that would be seen as um, unacceptable today. You know, I, I don't know that – you know, Fred Trump, we now know, you know, he committed he – almost certainly from the New York Times reporting, committed major tax fraud and other frauds. I don't know how he stood out at in the 50s and 60s and 70s. You know, the, the, the mob ran a lot of things. There was a kind of very open corruption in Albany. And, but certainly by the – into the 90s and into the 2000s, there's this major shift in New York, New Jersey, tri-state real estate and real estate kind of globally towards institutional institutionalization where you're not grabbing money from this uncle and this cousin and buying a building and paying off – the state assemblyman, you're you're putting together a package of buildings and selling a bond-like instrument to TIA Craft for you know some pension fund, where you have to go through a whole host of um, you have to have a lot of accountants, you have to have a lot of audits, you have to there's a professionalism that's required. It's not to say that's totally clean. There is still some corrupt stuff that happens, but it's much cleaner and much harder. And the Kushners and the Trumps don't really fully do that. Um, maybe the Kushners do it a little more than the Trumps, but but they don't fully do it. And obviously, we know about Jared's father's unbelievable venality. Um, you know, as a Jewish guy, I find it very offensive that he still calls himself an Orthodox Jew and he's behaved, you know, sending prostitutes to his brother-in-law and video. T- I mean, it's disgusting. But um, they make this ridiculous bet on 666 Fifth Avenue. Um, this, they buy it at the peak. There's, it, they're in a lot of trouble. And they are very openly on the global market looking for money to save them. And there, there's sort of a nexus around the Emirates and Saudi Arabia where we see, we see Jared developing these very close ties with Mohammed bin Salman, the crown prince, and with the Emiratis. We see Jared's father engaging the Emiratis. And we see U.S. policy shifting wildly in favor of of the Saudis and the Emiratis against Qatar. And I feel like we have less of the 
detail. I think the Kushners are more careful than than Trump, and we haven't had the flipping of of Cohen and others. And I haven't found it as easy. The Trump folks are very transactional. I find it very easy to develop sources there. Everyone wants to talk, and Kushners, I've not found that to be the case. But we see. Much like the Trump with Russia, we see something that is, even if we learn nothing, even if they didn't take any money, is unacceptable. We cannot have somebody who's running our foreign policy on the Middle East have their father have meeting, their father meeting with, with a member with a, of the ruling family exactly, about money. a bailout. Yeah, about a bailout. It is unimaginable. Now, I remember after I left Iraq, I had a strong feeling there's a lot of corruption here. And then, like a year later, um, remember who was that? That Navy guy who there, um, there's this the the Inspector General who came who had like these Navy uh, accountants. It was like this crazy story, but he revealed the extent of the corruption. It was far, far, far worse than anything we could imagine. I will not be surprised if we discover that. But even if we learn not another fact, this is un. Bearable. It's unacceptable. People are dying in Yemen. Cut. You know the fundamental architecture of the Middle East. Children are starving to death because it might be in the Kushner's. Yes, exactly. Personal financial interest. It's absolutely disgusting when you can't separate the two. And I wonder what it's going to take to get us to a point where Americans are outraged that their taxpayer dollars are going for this kind of personal enrichment, but also moral bankruptcy in the form of starving children. Yes, exactly. I mean, it, it's sort of I've been thinking a lot about the Jeffrey Epstein case where it's you have as a like a miniature version of the Trump case where you have something this horrible child predator who got this sweetheart deal. But you just have this moral clarity and then all these people doing exactly the wrong thing. And, and what is the structure that allows that? And that's why I think so for me, that's my argument about why we shouldn't journalists should not say anything they don't know to be true. And journalists should not like I'm not sitting here saying, yeah, I Sure, Kushner's guilty, and I'm sure he did this, I'm sure he did that. But journalists should say everything they know is true, and we shouldn't, you know, because what exists now is unbearable. Earlier, you said that in 2017, when you were running this story, that the Trump organization didn't seem too concerned with it. Are they concerned now? Does this investigation have their attention? Yes, and they don't have the capacity to deal with it. I are mean, they concerned or are they scared? I would say they are shifting to scared. There's a fundamental difference in how it was. There was a weird cockiness through, I'd say right through 2017 into 2018. A weird cockiness of, you've thrown everything at us and nothing touches us. It doesn't matter just doesn't matter. I feel a palpable sense of fear. Yes, I would say fear. There's this extraordinary new documentary out, Elise, that we've talked a little bit about off uh, off camera and off the set, and that's the Clinton affair. And what's so extraordinary in watching that is that it was self-inflicted, that at any moment, Bill Clinton, all he had to do to make it all go away was to settle the Paula Jones case, and he would not do it. And, of course, he assented to the empowering of the special counsel, and this has so defined this era of American life because 
what dominates any coverage around Donald Trump, and whether my Democratic friends like to hear this or not, it's true. And I don't say it with any commentary other than analyzing the fact. No matter what, no matter what debasement, no matter what dishonesty, no matter what, half the country says, but Bill Clinton did it. And thus, they immunize Donald Trump from it. But like Bill Clinton, if Donald Trump is undone by this, if in fact this is a fantastically corrupt organization, but it was successful in its corruption because nobody was looking, that they were incentivized to continue because they got caught, that the moment of the rash act, the firing of James Comey, which if you had any political antenna at all, any political acumen at all, you understood that before that firing, that it would inevitably and immediately lead to the empowering of a special counsel. And so for the first time, something that has never happened to Donald Trump, somebody with actual authority and power has gotten under the hood and looked at this business and all of its many tentacles and I think that they're scared to death about it. I think it. they're scared to death. And I also think that there's a new avenue open to Trump, uh, uh, prosecutors and others, that, that is more terrifying than impeachment. Well, in the Southern District, New York, and the contrast yeah. in those sentencing memos. Absolutely. Can you talk about the risk that Michael Cohen poses to Donald Trump? Yeah, Michael Cohen, and probably more so Alan Weisselberg, this longtime finance guy who admitted to some pretty shocking behavior in what may turn out to be the key to this whole thing in, in revealing the inner workings of the Trump organization, which is the New York attorney general case against the Trump foundation, which, which we forget about. We forget about, so but it's much. unimaginable. I mean, I recommend everyone Google Alan Weisselberg's testimony. Well, all Trump. I have to say about the Trump foundation ever is the first payment was for under $10 for what the fee to join the Boy Scouts was at the right, time. Exactly. And Don Jr. was Boy Scout yeah. age. Yes. That is the Trump foundation. That is amazing. And they, by law, I'm on the board of a nonprofit in New York. You have to have board meetings. And they just, they had not had any board meetings between 1999 and uh, 2000. 17, 2000. Anyway. Well, when you're yeah. running a scam university, you don't have the time. You don't no, have you're the time. Always, exactly. You're always, pressed for, you're always yeah. pressed for time if you're in the scam university. Exactly. So I was, I was talking to someone, a, a lawyer who does white collar crime, and I was like, walk me through. You're, you're Trump's lawyer. What are you scared about? And there's so many fronts. That is the concern. So there's a, there's a federal tr tax fraud potential from the New York Times reporting and other reporting that's Massive. I mean, we're talking about hundreds of millions of dollars in payments, not to mention fee fines and, and, and late fees and everything. I don't think he has $400 million to pay. But that he's also exposed in New York, New Jersey, Florida, Virginia. Three of those states have Democratic – does Virginia have a Democratic attorney general? I forget. But um, New York and New Jersey do. He's – you know, we talked about money laundering foreign corrupt practices. He probably skates on those because those are hard to prove unless someone provides the data. But we have multiple real estate deals in those jurisdictions, in Arizona and in California, not to mention Canada, the United Kingdom, et cetera, where, where there's exposure. So to my mind, you start seeing his money going away and now it will take a while. It's not something – those kind of 
cases take years and years and years. But the threat of that and his realization that he only has power for another two years for sure and the way he reacts to that pressure, I I am predicting 2019 is – multiple levels more crazy and batshit than anything we've seen before for exactly, Steve, the reasons you gave. He's, to me, in my mind, and this is just like I've studied the guy for a long time, I think impeachment and removal from office is terrifying, but he can sell that in his mind as like he's a hero of some nonsense resistance or whatever. But losing money, that cuts to the bone. You know, that Lose or revealing how little money he actually well, has. Well, you seem to think he doesn't have very much money. If you had to give an estimate, which I understand if you don't want to, considering that Tim O'Brien had to fight a billion-dollar lawsuit against Trump for accurately reporting the facts surrounding how much Donald Trump was worth. But what would you give as kind of a ballpark? I mean, I, w- I would say that there is an active discussion among the kind of Trump business press that if you truly – added up all of his liabilities and all of his assets, would that be a positive number? And and if it is, what would that number be? Certainly, he's very illiquid. He has very little access to ready cash. And he's very proudly and famously plays a lot of games with debt. Um, I think you can tell a very coherent story that up through 2004, much of what Trump himself, the Manhattan part of the business, was doing was funded by transfers from his dad. And then 2004 to like 2007, there's a real crisis. I mean, they they can't make payroll sometimes. I mean, in, inside people are telling me he's like taking money out of the woman's skating rink to pay payroll because he's out of cash. And then 2007, 8, 9, He's building this international business, which is just a frenzied... Well, and how did he afford the Scotland golf course? So this is the biggest mystery. All of these golf courses. If you ask me, what is the Trump organization today? What is it as a business? It is a business that takes legacy real estate assets and invests in Scottish golf. That is what it does. It has invested, by its own estimates, nearly $400 million in the last, uh, since 2014, we cannot, I've talked to everyone who studies Trump, we can't come up with $400 million. We don't know where that comes from. And you want to talk about non-economical. Golf is dying in Scotland. It's the most overserved golf. I mean, it should be. It's where golf was born. But nobody would invest this kind of money. In, there's no possible way he makes this money back. It happens to be golf is going gangbusters in China, Latin America, Africa even. So there's lots of places you would invest $400 million. Now, I will say the UK, more than the US, is where former Soviet Union business people want their money to be because they like the laws there. They And Scotland is famously a little less strict about knowing exactly where your money came from than England is. And we don't know, though. We really don't know. But what we see, it's not unlike the Baku Azerbaijan. What we see, it makes no sense at all. If you were a Scottish real estate development company whose whole business was Scottish real estate, you wouldn't do these deals. He's investing hundreds of millions of dollars in Aberdeen, Scotland, which is – the oil capital of Scotland, when oil prices were really high, it was this – there was a, a bubble, a kind of post-global bubble bubble. And so there's all this luxury homes. I just went – I was looking. There's like two homes in all of Aberdeen 
that are over a million pounds. Trump's about to build 150 homes, several of which are over a million pounds. There's no market. No, It's nonsense. No one wants to live there. Unless oil goes back up well above $100 a barrel for a long time, That it, it's a nonsensical investment. And then he keeps spending money, kind of like the Mamadoffs on their hotel um, in his other site, Turnberry, just rebuilding golf court, the the golf course, changing the golf course. It's just all this money going through it, and it's losing money every quarter, losing money, losing money, losing money, and he's investing capital, so he's never going to get that capital back. It's impossible. So there's that is... Well, this yeah. question, though, that you're posing, which is where does the money come from? We can make a couple of assumptions. It comes from Earth, right? <laughs> yeah. Do, do we think that it comes from Canada? No. Sierra Leone? Probably not. Honduras? I don't think so. So when we narrow the possibilities of the places where the money comes from, do, do all routes lead back to Russia or to republics of the former Soviet Union? I'd, I'd say he – I mean he does have this partner in Indonesia who's a pretty sketchy guy, Harry Tanisebjo. Um, his Vancouver, Canada deals with a very sketchy Malaysian family. But – all countries but Russia are one-offs. I mean, India, he has a few deals. Um, but, you know, Indonesia, he has one guy. Well, actually, India, he has one guy. Philippines, he has one guy. Former Soviet Union, he's got a lot of guys and a lot of people he's been talking to a lot. So if, you know, where am I focusing my attention? Obviously, that's where I'm focusing my attention. That's where... That's where he focused his attention. So that's where we're going to focus our attention. But, but it is... You're making a distinction. The... Russia transactions are much deeper than one-off transactions, as is the case with the deal between the shady developer from Malaysia. Exactly. I mean, if you look at – Trump went to uh, Georgia, to Batumi, but he – it takes a lot to get him to go somewhere. It takes a lot for him to stay in touch with someone. I mean, we – you know, he, he lives his life, as Maggie Haberman says, in 10-minute chunks. And – he has been so focused on Russia for so long, devoting so much time. His whole business hasn't been focused. You know, it was a built hotels, then it's an airline, then it's a, you know, casinos, then it's golf, golf, you know, either he's just been unbelievably patient, hoping something pays off down the road, or he's getting something out of that relationship to make it worth his while to devote so much effort to it. And he does not seem like a patient man to me. So you're saying he doesn't come across as patient and strategic. Cerebral. Cerebral. That would be my take. Yes, <laughs> that would be my take. Yeah. But I don't know for sure. I can't prove that um, except by observing him any minute of any day. Well, my head is spinning and kind of hurting just because I'm sad and worried that now this is going to become the new normal our country tolerating this kind of unethical behavior, which, as you very eloquently made the case, what's happening right in front of us is enough where we should be able to say this is completely unacceptable. So thank you so much for coming today and taking the time. And we would love to sit down again because clearly we could talk to you for hours. But thank you so much. Thank you. It's an honor to be on. And we want to thank our partner, Audible. If there's a book you like, chances are it's on Audible. 
And right now, you can take advantage of the Words Matter Audible Holiday Special and get three months of Audible for just $6.95 a month. That's more than half off the regular price. Give yourself or someone you love the gift of listening, the gift of a good book. Go to audible.com slash words matter or text words matter to 500 500. Audible, because words matter. Thank you for listening to Words Matter with Elise Jordan and Steve Schmidt. For more information on our show and hosts, visit wordsmattermedia.com. Please rate and review Words Matter on Apple Podcasts and other podcast providers.